We're going to finish Genesis 14. Uh, I'm excited about finishing Genesis 14, but before we do, uh, we need to pray for the Coffee family. Uh, need to pray for uh, who else am I forgetting? Connor, um, a few other people, but I'm just drawing a blank right now. Let me grab it. We need to pray for the Coffee family. We need to pray for the Atkins family. Pray for Tristan. Uh, pray for the Dale family. Pray for Barbie. Pray for the O'Connor family. receiving amen it's important for us to remember those things be good stewards over what god has for us and i wanted to just remind all the people who aren't here hey even if you're not here you can still give if you go to agape's website there's a give button right at the bottom of the page amen so you can give at home and give online still for all those people who want to amen let's pray Father God, we just ask that you would bless this offering that we are receiving tonight. Father, I pray for those who, everyone that gives, God, and everyone who has a heart to give, God, that you would bless them, that you would help them, that you would encourage them in their faith to give, God. Lord, we pray that everyone gives with a good heart, God, that is willing to give. Lord, we know that you love a cheerful giver, and we ask, God, that you use every single penny we bring in, God. For the work of the ministry here at the church that we might share your gospel and win those people to Christ. Lord, we ask you for your blessing. Ask for your hand in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I titled tonight Melchizedek. Just titled it Melchizedek, okay? Now, I'm gonna, we're going to read the last, what, I think there's like seven verses or something, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight verses. Uh, this is the last eight verses of Genesis chapter 14. Now, Genesis 14, when we started, we talked about Abraham rescuing Lot, or Abram, excuse me, I did it again. Abram rescuing Lot, right? This one, we're going to pick right back up here where they killed, or Abram uh, chased after, he followed the, the king, Chedorlaomer, uh, the king, and all the kings that were with him, and he defeated them in battle, right? We talked about how it says in the King James, he slaughtered them, right? Uh, so he utterly destroys them, and we pick back up at verse 17. So we're going to read from verse 17, and then we'll finish this chapter. Verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. And, Melchiz uh, excuse me, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from, uh, take from a thread even to a shoe latch. And that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young, man have eat, young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Anna, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Now this part right here is very telling. Uh, again of Abram's character because we know we, we saw one little character flaw, right, with Abram uh, and, and, you know, fibbing to the king, lying to the king about Sarai, right? So here we're seeing another instance of Abram's character. But I want to go through this a little bit by little bit. Number one, if you read verse 10 and if, you, if you'll indulge me to, to, to skip back to verse 10 for a second, it says, and the veil of Siddim was full of slime pits, or the ESV says, Butman pits, right? Isn't that what yours says, Kyle? I know that's what hers says. Okay. Uh, it's full of slime pits, or Butman pits, or tar pits. That's what these are, okay? And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. Now, when you read it in the ESV, could you go ahead and read it out loud to me, that verse from the ESV? Yeah. Right. So it almost seems like Sodom, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fell like in battle. They, they were killed. But that's not what it says. It says some fell. Even in the King James, it says, uh, and, uh, excuse me, let's start right here. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. Now, that doesn't mean they died, but their armies fell, Okay. They're, they're, they fell in battle. They're, they failed, right? The battle was lost. And they that remained fled into the mountains. What I wanted to notice, the very first thing, was that the king of Sodom obviously did not die in verse 10. Okay? And if he did, it's a different king. Okay? But it doesn't read like it's a different king. So it almost leads you to assume that this is the same king. Amen? Now, this king, 
must have lived through this attack where they fell, and he had to be part of the people that fled and survived who ran up into the mountains, okay? So, with this being said, the king didn't die, okay, obviously, because here he is, amen? Now, number two, he meets Abram in the valley of Sheba, or the valley of the kings, or in the King James it says the king's dale, okay? And this is a valley that's just east of Jerusalem. It's just a little valley set off over there in the plains by Jerusalem, okay? But it's interesting to think why the king of Sodom is coming to greet Abram. Because that's what it says he's doing, right? King James says that he came to greet Abram, right? So let's, let's talk about this. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, and three other kings faced four kings and lost. Then Abram, with 300 trained servants, goes and defeats the four kings that defeated the five kings. Okay? Now we can work this, we can work this out very easily. The king of Sodom was probably coming to Abram going, hey, I'm really glad you won. Okay? Number one, good job, right? Number two, the 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 those kings took off with all the spoils from Sodom and Gomorrah, right? So that's, this king's probably meeting him out there to see if he can get anything back, first of all, okay? <laughs> right? Right, right. Maybe, maybe be like, hey, what was your strategy? What did you do, right? Well, he didn't do what this king did. This king, Sodom and Gomorrah, and those other three kings went and met him in open battle on the battlefield. Abram did not do that. He waited until night. He divided his forces, and then he attacked. Amen? So I wrote down a little note. The king of Sodom was come to greet him, number one, probably to honor him for his victory, congratulate him, right? But it becomes pretty evident that the king is also coming to tell him, hey, I just want the people back. You deserve to keep the stuff. But apparently Abram knows this guy, okay? We have no, we have no way of knowing Abram didn't have no counsel from God saying, hey, the king of Sodom just wants to take advantage of you. It wasn't like he's walking around like a new age Pentecostal guy going, oh, oh, I hear you, Lord, I hear you. Apparently Abram knew this gentleman, okay, because his nephew lived in this town, right? So Abram probably had dealings with Sodom, okay, in some fashion or another, or at least heard from Lot about this man. Now, Abram is obviously sees right through whatever guys this guy's got. Oh, I'll take, I'll take the people back. You just keep the stuff. And he's like, oh, no. No, you're not. I'm not taking a thing from you. I've swore to the Lord that I'm not going to take anything from you. That way you can't say you have made Abraham rich. Right? So... This guy obviously coming out there, number one, probably to congratulate him, probably to honor him for the victory, number one, right? But obviously has a secondary motive that's revealed in just a couple verses, right? So Abram sees right through that. 
But before we get to this guy's motives, I want to get to the next part of this. Because it skips right past the king of Sodom coming to talk to him. And then it just interjects that the king of Salem, Melchizedek, the high priest or the priest of the most high God, right, comes to bless Abram. Okay? Now, first of all, we're going to ask a couple simple questions that we really only have the information that we have right in front of us about. Who is Melchizedek? He's the king of Salem. He's the high priest, or he's the priest of the most high God, right? Now, interestingly enough, this is the first time that anybody is considered a priest of God, of Yahweh. The Lord, Elohim, God. This is the first time anybody's said to be a high priest of God, of Elohim. Okay? This is the word that's used here when it says most high God. It's Elohim. Okay? We got to understand this. And Abram ties Elohim to Lord. Okay? He said, I've raised my hand to the Lord, the most high God. Right? So this is the first instance that we see anybody named a priest. Now, what's he the priest of? Okay, because we don't know. The reality is there's no tabernacle in the wilderness yet. There's no temple. Right? So obviously before the tabernacle, there was still some form of worship to Yahweh, to Elohim, to the God of Abraham, right? There was some form of worship to the Most High God. And how I can say that is this. Cain and Abel offered sacrifice. Abram's offered sacrifice over and over, right? Noah offered sacrifice, right? Even in Genesis 9, we see... God establishing a law saying if one man kills another man, that man's blood is, you know, he shall be killed by another man, right? In other words, his blood's on his head and his blood will be required of him. That's what Genesis 9 talks about, right? So we see the beginnings of worship to God already. It was not a priesthood like the Levitical priesthood per se, right? But there was obviously some sort of worship to Yahweh, to Elohim, to the great, the, the, the most high God was already taking place, okay? It was taking place enough that the writer of this, who's Moses, right, can assume you understand that this is a priest of the most high God because he wrote it down that way, right? Now, the other thing that I want to interest uh, that I think is interesting is it says he's the king of Salem. Okay, now if you do any research on any uh, from any commentary, I haven't seen anybody deviate from this. Okay, there's always, almost always, without exception, nearly every study Bible I have, nearly every commentator that I use, even Calvin understand Salem to be short for Jerusalem, okay? Just say it. Or in Hebrew, Jerusalem, okay? But it's the abbreviated part, Salem, 
or Salem, okay? That's, it's spelled exactly the same. All you had to do is put the rest of the word on there, right? And it's Jerusalem. So almost unequivocally, people talk about it being Jerusalem, okay? I want to read a little, a few study notes on this, uh, just this verse for just a minute, because I think it bears in mind uh, considering, okay? So if you will allow me, I'm going to read the two notes from, I got the King James Study Bible and the ESV Study Bible note is really good too. Uh, Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, okay? That's what Melchizedek means. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. They give you a note. So I want to just turn there to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to, we'll go back to the note here in a minute. Let's look at the, the relevance of this note, what this note is talking about, and then we'll go back to the note and finish the note. But this study note comes in pretty handy when you look this up. It says this in Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to start verse 1 because, I mean, why not? Uh, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, notice that the writer of Hebrews assumes the same thing that Moses, who wrote the the, the Genesis assumed that people understand who the most high God is and understand that there's a priesthood to the most high God. Even though there was no tabernacle, there was no uh, Levitical priesthood yet, there was still some sort of priesthood, okay? And the writer of Hebrews seems to just agree that he was this, right? Doesn't question it, he just says he was, right? Now, for this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. Now he's talking about Melchizedek, king of righteousness, right? And after that, also king of Salem, okay, which is king of peace. Now, the word peace is what in Hebrew? Shalom. Now, I want you to understand that Salem and Shalom are very similar words. Thus, you have Jerusalem, okay? So, I was going to do this on purpose. Now look up the meaning of the word Jerusalem. I know it may say city of God or some stuff like that. But I think this would be interesting. And I want you to do that, okay? I'm going to flip back to this note, okay? We're going to flip back to this note. And I'm going to read some more off this note while he's looking. So we understand his name is the king of righteousness. Hebrews 7 Two, authenticates, first of all, one and two, authenticates that he was the king of Salem, authenticates that he was a priest of the most high God, and then authenticates the fact that he's called the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, right, and the king of peace. What does it mean? City 
of peace is what Jerusalem means, okay? Go ahead. What's that? Verse, verse, read verse 3 for me. I forgot what it says. Right, right. Right. Now, let me go back and read that again. Because you got me you got me interested now. I'm gonna go ahead and read it so everybody on the camera can hear it. Just just so they just so they can hear it, okay? Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding Oh, I'm not on the right part. Ah, Sorry. This is talking about the king of Salem, whose father, uh, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abram gave a tenth of his spoils. So this Melchizedek seems to have no parentage, no father, no mother, but likened unto the Son of God. Some people assume that this may have been a pre-incarnation of Christ, right? This is, this is a, what do they call it, a, a Christophany, okay? This is, this is a Christophany, they, they, some people would say, and I know a lot of people who hold to that, okay? Now, what we do know is, wholeheartedly, he was the king of Salem, which very easily could be Jerusalem because he's also the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. The city of peace or <laughs> Jerusalem, okay? So these words, this, this, this tying together of this Melchizedek is really interesting, especially in light of Hebrews 7, okay? Especially in light of Hebrews 7. Now I want you to think about it from Abram's point of view, okay? Abram gives him a tenth. Why does he tithe, okay? Why does he tithe? Is it because this guy's a great king, or is it because this is a Christophany? Is it because this is God showing himself to him again? You know what I mean? So it, it bears in mind thinking about. I can't prove any of that, okay? It's, it's all speculation from what we're tying together. But what we do know is this guy was the king of Salem or Jerusalem, and he was a priest, the most high God. And if we read Hebrews 7, 1, 2, 3, and 4, he was without parents, father and mother, made in the likeness of the Son of God. So this is a pretty interesting guy, okay? And this is a very, very telling moment, okay? Now, I want, I want to show you something that this priest does, okay? If you look at uh, verse, where are we starting at? Okay, right here, verse 18. Now, I'm going to read it. Uh, let, me, let me finish my note before I get lost, okay? Uh, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, held two titles. He was the king of Salem, literally the king of peace, Salem being another name for the nearby Jerusalem, and a priest of the Most High God. Abram considered Melchizedek, who is the first person in the Bible to be called priest, to be 
priest of Jehovah since he equated the title Most High with the Lord. Verse 22. The writer of Hebrews draws significant parallels between Melchizedek and Jesus. And he gives these verses. He gives Hebrews 5 and 6. He gives Hebrews 7, 1 through 28. He goes the whole chapter. Okay? So we can read the whole chapter of chapter 7 of Hebrews and just keep drawing parallels between this Melchizedek and Christ. Okay, And he does that on purpose because they understood, and obviously the writer of Hebrews has an understanding, that Melchizedek was an eternal priesthood. Okay, Why? I would have to assume because Melchizedek himself was not a man per se, but a Christophany or God revealing himself. This is another uh, uh, theophany of some sort. Amen? Huh? It makes sense, right? Go ahead. Well, nerd us out. Uh huh. Right, right. So in the ESV, in Hebrews, they say they slaughtered them, but yeah, there it says defeat. Right, right. But I just thought that was interesting. Because it's the same word in Hebrew. Right, right. I think it's because it was a slaughter, and that's what I think. <laughs> I think the defeat was really bad. That's what I think. <laughs> it was a grotesque defeat, especially since there was four armies. And Abram only had 318 trained servants. Amen? So, that's pretty bad. Now, here's a, a I want to read, I want to read real quick, if you would let me, uh, the ESV note on this, because it's very, very good. Uh, it says, Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness, and they say, see Hebrews 7, 2, which we already did. Uh, Hebrews 7.2 generously provides a meal for the returning victors. This is what Melchizedek's doing. Remember, he brings out bread and wine, right? Uh, Salem is possibly a shortened version of Jerusalem. Now, they give you Psalm chapter 76, verse 2 as a note. And I want to go look at Psalm 72, verse 6. I want you to see this. And understand that Salem is not just a randomly put word here, but Salem is understood to be Jerusalem, Zion, the city of God, okay? So, Psalm 72, uh, verse uh, 6. Is, did, I, did I say the right one? 76, verse 2. My bad, my bad. 76, verse 2. I transpose the numbers. I'm sorry. Now watch this. I'm going to start at verse 1. In Judah, God is, uh, in Judah is God known. His name great in Israel. Now watch this. In Salem also in his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Interesting, ain't it? Now does it say 
Salem in the ESV? It does, right? Because this is a known shortening of the word Jerusalem, okay? Now, once you understand that, we have to understand that Jerusalem was being lived in, occupied for a long, long, long time, okay? Not just by the Jews when they came over after the uh, exodus, okay? Not just by the Hebrews who entered the promised land, but there were people living on Zion or around Zion in Jerusalem at this time. Have to be. They have to be living there, okay? Now, it's interesting because we go, I don't know about that. Well, okay, Abraham was, Abram was dwelling in Bethel. He was dwelling by Ai. He was dwelling, he was all around there, right? So why isn't it possible that there were other Hebrews who had followed him who had stopped there and stayed? We're just not, we don't have that information, but obviously there are people living here calling this place Salem or Jerusalem already, okay? And Psalm seems to confer that this name is implicit. Salem is implicit with Zion, and we know where Zion is, right? The mountain in Jerusalem, right? That's where the temple was eventually put, okay? That's Mount Zion. Amen? I'm just, just, just saying. <laughs> right, right. 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 And Jerusalem is a type of the heaven. What we're where we're gonna go, right? So Melchizedek, even though he's the king of Salem, he's a priest of the Most High God, we can see that he's not a normal man. He's obviously a theophany, you know. And so the city, Salem, the mountain of God, Zion, has to be another uh, type and a shadow of the future coming kingdom also. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of things that can be tied up here. I just thought it was interesting that they gave you another reference for the city, not just for Melchizedek, but for the city, okay, for, for Salem, okay. Uh, I don't think I'm going to read this whole note because it's very long, but I'm going to read a couple more things. Uh, Salem is possibly a shortened version of Jerusalem, see Psalm 76, 2, and is related to Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, see also again, Hebrews 7, 2. He was priest of God Most High. Although very little is known about Melchizedek, he provides an interesting example of a priest king linked to Jerusalem. There, there appears to have been an expectation that later kings of Jerusalem should resemble him. And they give you Psalm 110, verse 4. Okay, let's go there and look at this. Okay. Now, what future king is supposed to be, resemble him, okay? And when we read Psalm 110, it's going to kind of clear this up, okay? Psalm 110, uh, I don't know why we can't read the whole thing. It's only seven verses. The Lord said unto my Lord, now we know this, 
as talking about Christ, right? My Lord said, uh, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauty of thy holiness, from the womb of the morning. Thou hast due of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through the king's in the day of his wrath, he shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the palaces with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. Now, this is talking about Christ. So Christ, being our great high priest and our king, is the ultimate priest King. And Melchizedek is surely an archetype of Christ. Amen. So I, I just wanted to bring that up because this is really good stuff. Okay. When you start tying this together, you're going, oh man, I like that. So this guy wasn't just a normal guy. The king of Salem isn't just a regular normal guy. Okay. You got to understand that the writer of Hebrews is going by all the tradition that the Hebrews have handed down generation after generation about the Melchizedek, the king of Salem. So the understanding that he had a priesthood that would last forever was tied to Psalm chapter 110. Okay? The fact that he was ruling in Jerusalem was tied to that. The fact that this king that met Abram, who has, we have no idea where he came from or where he goes after this, okay? He's never mentioned again, okay? But the understanding is surely that this was a God revealing himself to Abram. It was not a normal event. It was not a normal king. And Abram gives him a tithe, okay? You don't tithe to just any old body. Right. 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 Can you imagine learning it straight from him? Yeah. Oh man. Uh, I want to read just a little bit more of this. The the book of Hebrews presents Jesus Christ from the royal line of David as belonging to the order of Melchizedek and therefore superior to the Levitical priesthood. Hebrews 5, 5 through 10, uh, Hebrews 6, 20 through 7, 17, if you want to look that up later. God Most High in Hebrew is El Elyon, El Elyon. El is common Semitic for God, the shortened El. El Elyon means God Most High. Okay? To add to this is added the attribute Elyon, meaning Most High, so God Most High. Elsewhere in Genesis, other attributes are added to El. Uh, 
such as, um, excuse me, I've lost my place, El Roy, the, uh, the God who sees, God Almighty, El Shaddai, right? The everlasting God, El Olim, okay? That's God everlasting. These are all different attributes of the name and aspects of God's attributes. Meaning the L is God and the rest describes who he is. God Most High. El Elyon. That's God Most High. Okay? But we see Abram tied him. Abram ties the title El or God Most High. El Elyon to Yahweh. That's what the Lord means. That's Jehovah in, you know, Latin Vulgate translated into Greek to Jehovah, but in Hebrew is Yahweh, okay? That's who he tied it to. He said, I've raised my hand to the Most High God, the Lord, right? So he's tying those two names together as being the same person, all right? Now I'm going to get through this. We spent a long time on Melchizedek, and I, I intended to, okay? Because I thought that was very interesting, and I want you to understand that this very possibly is a theophany, more specifically a Christophany, okay? Uh, but those notes were pretty good, and they caused you to dig in a little bit and find some more information out. Uh, I want you to notice that he blesses Abram, okay? He blesses him. This king that comes out of nowhere, this priest of the Most High God that comes out of nowhere, blesses Abram, okay? That's what it says, right? Uh, I want to read verse 19. I'm going to read it out of the King James, and then I'm going to read it out of the ESV, because the ESV kind of makes 19 a bit more clear, Okay? And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, in the King James, if you're a modern English reader, it's going to sound like it says, Blessed be Abram who is from the Most High God. That's kind of the way we read it in our mind in English. But that's not the word, the wording in the Hebrew. It, uh, the ESV says it this way, and I want to read it to you. It says, Blessed be Abram by the Most High God. By the Most High God. So when it says in the King James where it says, uh, Blessed be Abram uh, of the Most High God, that of the is actually a phrase meaning by. Meaning God has blessed him, okay? And it's tied directly with the fact that God possesses the heavens and the earth, okay? This is another thing that we see here, right? Moses understanding that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Moses understanding that God is in control of his creation, that he owns the heavens. He owns the earth, right? I can't, you guys won't believe this, but people get into the debate nowadays about God still owning the earth. Because of one verse that's taken out of context. Paul says that Satan is the God of this world. 
That doesn't mean this physical world. That doesn't mean he, he controls the weather because we know biblically God does this, right? We know that he doesn't control uh, 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 kingdoms and, 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 and uh, authorities because God is the one who brings a kingdom up and brings another kingdom down, right? So when we understand this, what we got to understand is when he says God, Satan is the God of this world, what he's talking about is the God of this world. People understand that people are dead in their sins and trespasses and that Satan is out to deceive and lie and steal and destroy people, right? When it says be in the world but not of the world, does that mean... Don't be in earth? No. It's talking about how the world lives. It's talking about their mentality, their spiritual, uh, uh, their, their spiritual condition, right? The, those things. It's talking directly about people, not the physical terra firma earth, okay? The, the word isn't earth there. It's world, the God of this world. We understand we're to be in the world, but not of the world. And it's not talking about earth, it's talking about people, right? So when we understand this verse correctly, we can eliminate the idea that somehow now Satan has the title deed to the earth. That's not true. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That did not change. That was written after the fall. Can I get an amen? That verse was written after the fall of man, right? So after the fall of man, they still said, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So when the New Testament speaks of him being the God of this world, he's not talking about the earth. He's talking about people, the world system, how people behave, sin that has crept into the heart of man and has made us all lost and undone. That's the world, okay? The same world that he says, be in the world, but not of the world. The same world, amen? Not talking about the planet Earth, talking about people, behavior, condition, those things, amen? So the reason why I bring that up, because Abram, rather, Melchizedek understands that the Earth is God's possession. The heavens are God's possession. Amen? <laughs> so, uh, just to throw that out there. And I might have been jabbing somebody in the eye, but I didn't mean to. Real, not, well, I did. <clears throat> bless. It says, bless be Abram by the most high God. Okay? And then verse, uh, excuse me, lost my place. Now watch this. This high priest, this priest of the most high God, says, Blessed be the most high God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. Now, this is very much a praise to God saying, Look at, blessed be the God, the most high God, who's delivered your enemies. So in other words, Melchizedek understands that Abram's victory wasn't because of Abram. It's because the Most High God delivered the enemy into his hand. Why? Because he has a covenant with Abram. 
Amen? Because he has a covenant with Abram. Amen? And we go, if you flip forward, I wrote a note down just for you to look up later. You don't have to look it up right now. But Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 is where God says, I'll go before you and I'll fight your battles, right? Matter of fact, let's just go read it, okay? I don't want to butcher this verse while I'm trying to tell you to go look it up later, okay? We got a Bible right in front of us. We can go look it up right now. Deuteronomy 20 verse 4. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Amen? That's God's purpose. And Melchizedek understands this even before Deuteronomy happens, right? He understands this. Why? Because he's God, first of all. <laughs> it's theophany. <laughs> if, if, we, if we believe it's a theophany, it's a Christophany of some sort, okay? But he understands that it's God giving him the victory, and he's more like praising God, it sounds like, right? It's more like he's honoring God in his blessing of Abram, okay? And when he does this, seemingly out of nowhere, Abram's like, I'm giving you a tithe here. Because that's the very next thing it says, right? Look at, look at verse 20. He says, And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Now, right here it just says in the King James, And he gave him tithes of all. Okay. If you go to Hebrews, it tells you that Abram's the one that gives the tithe to Melchizedek, right? The ESV reads more that, How's the ESV read that right there? And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Okay? The King James doesn't quite say it as clear, but if you go to Hebrews and read Hebrews 7, it makes it clear that Abram's the one that was given the tithe. Right? Now, this is before God had ever even demanded a tithe. Right? I want you to notice a few things that has happened in the Old Testament now before God commanded it. Okay, number one, sacrifices are happening, and God has not commanded it, okay? Altars are built, being built to the one true God, to the most high God. God has not commanded this yet, right? Now, here's the other thing that's happening. Praise of the Most High God is happening even before God is commanding it, okay? They're honoring God. They're praising God. They're worshiping God, right? In all these instances that we can see, God, that this brings to light uh, Romans 1 for me, where it says he made all of his invisible qualities known to everything that was made, so that man is without excuse, right? When we understand that, this is these people have met the Most High God, not just uh, the you know seeing it in creation, but they're having moments where the Most High God is appearing to them and talking to them, right? 
And it's changing these people to where, you know, even, even you know, Adam and Eve get uh, clothed with animal skin. And the very next thing you see is, that, is their sons bringing offerings to God. Right? It's amazing how innately man should want to worship God. How innately man should want to honor God. Amen? Especially those who know God. Amen? You never see anyone in the scriptures who knows God doesn't worship God. You see a whole lot of people who claim to be part of God's family, but they, have, they do not know him. Therefore, they do not worship him. Amen? Very interesting. Very, very, very interesting. Uh, Abram ties a tenth of all of his spoils, and then right after Abram ties a tenth, here comes the king of Sodom. Now, we know that Sodom was a wicked city. We've already read where it said the men of Sodom were wicked, evil in God's sight, right? So the king of Sodom comes to him and says, Unto Abraham, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand to the Lord. That's Yahweh or Jehovah, okay? To the most high God. Now he's tying Jehovah or Yahweh to El Elyon. Okay, those are the same people. It's the same person. Abram is tying them together, right? Now, he said, I've raised my hand up unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. Notice that Abram now takes Melchizedek's understanding. Melchizedek called him the possessor of the heaven and the earth. And now Abram, when he's talking to the king of Sodom, says, I've raised my hand, swore an oath. That's what he's saying. I've sworn an oath to the Most High God, to, to El Elyon, Yahweh. I've sworn to him who possesses the heavens and the earth. And then he says that I will not take from, uh, take from a thread even of a uh, shoe latch and that I would not take anything that is thine. Now, Abram swore that he wouldn't take anything from this king. That's what he's telling him, right? We don't, so obviously there's some dialogue here that's missing. Abram, we're not told, said anything when, when, when Melchizedek was talking to him. But obviously when he gave his tithe, he was swearing an oath that he would not take anything from the king of Sodom. Okay, And I think this is very telling because Abram knows how the men of Sodom are. He knows that Sodom is wicked and he doesn't want anything of theirs. Maybe we should get that way. We don't want anything of the world's. Can I get an amen? <laughs> we should get to the point where we don't want anything from the world. Amen? But anyway, Abram has obviously sworn an oath to this, okay? He said, I've raised my hand to, to the Lord, to the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from thee even a thread of a shoe latch, 
and that I would not take anything that is thine, lest thou should say, I have made Abram rich. Now, the reason that Abram's doing this, number one, is he wants God to get the glory for promoting him. Amen? He doesn't want to take a handout from this king and that king get the glory for making Abram rich. Amen? Number two, it is stealing God's glory because God is the one that delivered the enemies into Abram's hands. Not this king. Amen? So Abram's oath, Abram's vow is to God, to Yahweh, to the Most High God. Amen? Lastly, we also see him again interceding for other people. Watch this. He says, save only that which the young men have already eaten and the portion of the men which went with me. Anna, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. You see that? Abram again looking out for the benefit of other people and seemingly leaving himself out. What does he do with Lot? You choose anything you want, Lot. I'll let you have it, right? And God blesses him anyway. That's exactly what's about to happen here. Because Abram is, first of all, has saved all these people, not taken a penny for it, pleaded the case for these other three men to get their portion, right? The very next chapter, God reestablishes the covenant again with Abram. And then he increases the covenant even more. Okay? Every time that God, Abram does something like this, God expands the covenant a little more, a little more, a little more. To the very end where Abram is just promised all these things. Amen? And it's because Abram has faith in God continually. Why didn't he want this king's stuff? I, I'm assuming that it's quite a bit of things, right? Because he understood that God was his supply. Not this man, not this uh, moment where he could get all these spoils, but God's the one who was going to take care of him. God's the one that's going to promote him. God's the one that's going to give him success. Amen? And Abraham is rewarded with this. The very next chapter, God's renewing his covenant with Abram. And, and promises him an heir, and it, it seemingly expands the covenant. Okay, I want to, I want to leave, I want to leave it right here because uh, chapter fifteen is going to be really good. You know, Abraham has a vision; he gets a promise of an heir. God renews his covenant with him. All kinds of things happen in the next one, but it's based off of every time in in Abram's story. It's based off of. Abram, number one, believing God, knowing God is with him. He goes and rescues Lot, delivers all those other people, brings back all the spoils, gives a tenth to Melchizedek, doesn't keep any for himself, pleads the case for these other three men to get their portion, but says, I don't want any. I've swore to the Lord that I wouldn't take anything. Why? Because he's believing God. And the promises of God. And far too often, we'd rather take the first thing that comes along rather than wait on what God actually has for us.
Amen? And it's a lesson that I can learn. It's a lesson that you can learn. Amen? Well, yeah, he already had stuff. He, you know, got spoils from Egypt. Obviously, he had 318 trained men, right? He wasn't, he wasn't, you know, just some podunk, one sheep herding, goat herder. But that makes any sense, right? But Abram here also shows his character again in pleading the case for other people, which he's going to do again in a couple more chapters at Sodom and Gomorrah. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all the lessons that you teach us through your word. God, we thank you that your word is alive. It's living and active, and it helps us to grow. It, it helps us to, to, uh, to understand our own weaknesses. It helps us to see our failures and our faults. But it also helps us, God, to look with hope to Christ, who is our great high priest who is our king, who is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek, who has a priesthood that will never end. And we can come boldly before your throne of grace because he is not only the sacrifice, he's not only the high priest, but he is the judge of all things. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He has the name that is above every name. All power in heaven and in earth have been given unto him. And it's in Jesus' name and by his blood, by his work, by his spirit that any of us come to know you, to follow you. And it's only by that same process that we are going to be changed into the image of him who loved us and gave himself for us. God, we pray that you would help us as we follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.